Hello and welcome to Wine Blast. I'm Susie Barry and I think I've almost forgotten what your name is, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Happy Who are you? Well. <laughs> the beard is definitely bushier. It is. Um, it is indeed. And to be fair, you know, you've consumed epic, epic quantities of Chardonnay while I've been away, from what I hear, and that can, that can do funny things to your mind, you know. <laughs> My mind. Anyway, it's, it's not just me who's been away, is it? No, no, that's yeah. true. That's true. That's true. I've been away too. Um, it, I, actually, it feels strange just even saying that after yeah, the year of lockdown that we've had. Um, but it's also important to add that uh, this is not a gloat. Um, we're just very aware we haven't put an episode out in a while, so we wanted to explain why. Um, yes. I was away filming in Holland and you've now been away filming for this new and new wine and travel show in Georgia Ooh. which is Ooh. all very exciting um, okay. but not hugely conducive to recording a podcast no. where we both need no. to be in the same room it, at the same time. Clearly not very conducive to remembering each other's names either <laughs> so maybe we should reintroduce ourselves. Anyway just for the record I'm Peter. Hello. You are. Hello, Hello to you. Hello to everyone listening. Um, I'm your friendly neighbourhood MW, Master of Wine, uh, in case any of you have forgotten. How could we? Forgotten me. Um, but, you know, I think we probably shouldn't talk too much about ourselves this one because it's already a hugely mm. self-referential show, mm. isn't it, it? It is, it is. So, yeah, so we, we recently did a, a pod swap with Canadian wine writer Natalie McLean. Uh, she came on our show, mm, yeah. um, which was Series 2, Episode Nine, I think we yes. said it was, yeah, yeah um, where where we we amongst other things uh, had some fun matching sweet chili crisps to sparkling ice wine. That brings back wonderful memories. It's uh, it's different, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then uh, she interviewed us over two shows on her unreserved mm. wine talk podcast. So we thought it might be interesting to share those interviews here. Yeah, I mean, this might come across as unforgivably narcissistic to to replay interviews with ourselves. Um, sorry, Far be it from us to ever be narcissistic. <laughs> sorry, that's how it seems. But hopefully there are there. Are are some interesting things in here some interesting content um i mean you talk about thigh slapping for mm-hmm. example which is indeed. always good value i mean we we reveal the worst moments in our careers to date you <laughs> <laughs> might be hitting a new low today you never know <laughs> yeah, who knows where we're going um what wine has done for our relationship was an interesting question mm-hmm. i think you were treading on thin ice with the answer to that one most probably um and and also you know we discussed things like the the the, the what is it? The sort of fancy dress tendencies of French marathon runners. Mm, and that's just be... the first episode, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to put out both parts of the interview. You are warned mm. uh, that Natalie published as separate shows. Uh, this is part one. And then in part two, we talk about our wine festival, the mm. Wine GB Awards, this podcast, uh, English wine, why we think doing the MW is a good thing. Yeah, um, that's, that's, I think this is a good point because I've seen yeah. out there, there is quite a lot of Almost sort of anti-wine education mm, feeling, which there is at the moment. We struggle it? with, and I think we might sort of yeah. explore a bit. But um, that's because we, we're geeks and we like learning things. Well, yeah, but we learn things to help people. Yeah, it's not like yeah. we learn things to 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 you know blow our own trumpets. You, you yeah. do it to, yeah. to understand the subject more and, and help people. Anyway, so, sorry, so I get that. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> anyway, that's slight, uh, slightly more light-hearted. We we answer questions like if you could share a wine with anyone, who would it be? Mm. Mm. And uh, and if we could be any type of wine, what would yeah, we be? Yeah, the, the mind boggles. Uh, I think in part two, we'll also be talking a little bit more about what we've been uh, filming and why. Um, Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, just in general, what what filming Wine TV abroad during a pandemic is Is like. like. Uh, But for now, we just wanted to start with something else that's a bit overdue as well. Lots of things are overdue at the moment. Uh, And that's our announcing the winner of our New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc competition from our last episode. Woohoo! You know, and this winner, of course, stands to win a mixed case of six bottles of fine New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which we recommended in our last episode. This is a nice case. There were some lovely wines in there, weren't there? Really? I Um, want to win it, but of course I can't. (laughs) 
Have you have you entered under a pen name? <laughs> I've got somebody else who entered for me. Has Dan Dini entered? Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. So this is all courtesy of New Zealand Wine Growers. So thank you very much. Yeah, to them yeah, yeah. And, and and thanks to everyone actually who entered. Mm. Uh, we had so many brilliant responses to our question, which was. Mm. What's your favourite accompaniment to Sauvignon Blanc? Now, it could be food, but we also said, didn't we, that it could be music, it could be an occasion, it could be a person. We were, what we really wanted was people to say us, but no one did. <laughs> so I feel a bit, we feel a bit... We could have said that for each I other. Bit, we well, weren't maybe. allowed to enter. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what have we got? What have we got? Yeah, come, come on, on. Let's, let's have a look. Do you want to kick us off? We've got so, a list here. So, a short, nomadic a short grape list. said, <laughs> I love this, simple, Sauvignon Blanc should be accompanied by more Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> yeah, and he added, Sauvignon Blanc brings, brings clarity to the mind. But clearly you know. not to the tongue. Blings. No, to the, to the mind. Well, certainly to their mind, not to mine. And I, maybe I haven't had enough today. Maybe that's the thing. So Dave said, after the year we've just had, there would be nothing better than sharing a bottle or two anytime, just with family, along with grilled prawn salad with asparagus, spinach leaves, fresh garden peas, peppers, tomatoes, listening to a chilled Jack Johnson. I love the way that Dave is, is not very specific about fascist family, <laughs> family, but yeah. the food is incredibly specific. <laughs> now, one of my absolute favourites from Victoria was a funnel. And judging by its presence on restaurant, this is Sauvignon, judging by its presence on restaurant restaurant menus across the country, I guess a lot of people feel the same. A I funnel, do. A funnel. We do. So it's just a, right, I get it. Love yeah, it. Yeah. Love it. Victoria. One of my favourites. Um, you need talking to. Uh, Andrew uh, said, with a Devon crab and fennel salad, sat on the quayside in Dartmouth. Wow. It's simple. Often the simple things yeah. are best. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, Dan's is one of my best. Um, so what does he accompany Sauvignon Blanc with? A 50-foot sailing yacht to drink it on. <laughs> Loving your thinking, Why not Dan? go 100, Dan? You know, go big. Um, Carol said, my best friend's in the garden with some goat's cheese and riotous laughter. Oh. Love that. So Shinaz went a bit Spanish on us and wanted padron peppers. Mm, um, drizzle idea. some olive oil, sprinkle some rock salt in the grill for a few mins. Gorgeous with a glass of chilled Sauvignon Blanc. I love that Blanc. idea. Yeah, I love so it, yeah. peppers are yeah, so yeah. nice, aren't they? Jeremy just said... Fresh air on a mountain summit. Oh, love it. Getting a bit poetic then. So Deirdre, she went Italian. So we've gone from Spain to Italy. Pasta alla Genovese in the sunshine with friends and the sense of freedom that New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc inspires. I love this. I love that. Slightly more intangible ideas, Mm. you know, freedom. Mm. I mean, Mm. I I have to say that when I hear that, I I see Mel Gibson. So I'm, not, I'm not sure what New Zealand Sauvignon has got to do with, with Scottish, Sorry, the Scottish uh, fight for independence. Oh, no, come off Freedom. it. That's not what she means at all. You know, she means floating you, in the sea of the Mediterranean or you know, maybe something, maybe, running through meadows. Maybe I should think less kilts and hairy legs yeah, and more kind yeah, of no, just, no, just no. Um, floating Sunshine in the med- and, Okay, and fine. Sorry. I'll get on Grassy that. Grassy uh, Hannah just said fish and chips. Yeah, fair enough. That's a winner. Brad said sun, sea and my favourite Sauvignon Blanc loving person, my wife. Uh, Liz said evening sunshine, freshly barbecued lobster, friends in a second bottle. Oh, and the promise of a refreshing swim in the sea the next morning. Love it. Love it. Kay Lynch sat in a beautiful square in France, surrounded by plain trees, a chevre show salad. And a good book. I love that. I love putting, you know, good Sauvignon Blanc in, in a French context. Mm. You know? Oh, wonderful. Mm. Uh, then we had another entry which said, we said, with a tray of fresh shucked oysters by the sea. 
Sauvignon Blanc even pairs with the salt in the air. Okay. And it's true that a lot of these mention the sea, yeah. don't they? Yeah, There's a yeah. Seaside very theme, much so. There? There's a very much sort of fresh open air, like we said, the freedom, mm. the swimming in the sea. There's a, there's a sort of, it, it totally Freshness. ties yeah. with New Zealand Sauvignon but, but Blanc, doesn't could, it? You know, some, some of the really best Sauvignons in the world and in New Zealand mm. at the moment, they do have that sort of slightly salty, salty edge. Salty edge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So another was uh, alongside spaghetti vongolet on the terrace on a sunny evening. A family tradition, as it's the only family meal my little kids will happily eat with us and actually sit quietly for briefly, <laughs> thus allowing a moment to savour a glass of delicious, crisp, herbaceous Sauvignon Blanc. Yum. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, ben Vorian said, uh, coming at you from spending some time in Amsterdam, the herbaceous notes of Sauvignon go pretty well with some Bob whilst listening to some Marley. I'm just going to leave that one out there. Um, we're not going to explore that. that one. Don't worry. No, uh, okay. Other people will. Okay, right. brilliant, okay. brilliant. So, brilliant. But the winner. We have yes, a winner. we do have a winner. We do have a winner. Are you going to do it? Go I on. I don't know. I don't know. Can yeah, we just on. say the winner is the winner is Tamsin Bourne. Tamsin. Yeah. She wrote us a poem. She wrote us a poem. That's I mean, why really? she's the winner. That is why just, she's the winner. It's, it's, it's because of the poem. Do you the want to poem. read it? Go on. Go get the poem, apparently. My favourite accompaniment to Sauvignon is sea bass or salmon au beurre blanc with spring onions and parsley thereupon on a patio, the patio, watching the setting sun, enjoyed with my favourite companion, my husband. Oh. Love it. So it's a bit, to be honest, it's a bit soppy, uh, Tamsin. But we'll, we'll go with that, Tamsin. <laughs> we you love are the it. Winner you wrote of, us, she wrote us a poem. She wrote us a poem. Come on, People no criticisms. Tamsin, the only thing Fabulous. you could have done better was to say it was if you got Susie and Peter in the rhyme scheme, <laughs> along with your husband. But I'm not criticising. Well done. Fantastic winner. You deserve it. Thank you to everyone for entering. That's oh, awesome. Okay, on with the show, on with the show. Or should we say Natalie's show, actually. Mm. This interview with us was originally published by Natalie on Unreserved Wine Talk on the 24th of February, 2021. The, the prize bundle uh, that's that's mentioned has been won. Congratu- congratulations to Rick in Temel- Temecula. Temecula. I knew I'd get that wrong. Temecula. I even looked that up. Temecula, California. Anyway, Rick, sorry, but you got the bundle. Uh, but you can find the the watch party on Natalie's YouTube channel, and we'll we'll put a link to that, won't we, on yeah, our site? Yeah, yeah, and that can be helpful because Natalie uses a few photos of ours by way of discussion points um, in this. Some some of these photos are more embarrassing than others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, the, the, YouTube, <laughs> the YouTube video shows, I'm not sure we should be actually referencing this, but anyway, the YouTube video does show those photos. So the conversation can make a bit more sense that way. But we'll also, we'll put these photos up on our site uh, in the show notes for this episode. Or to be honest, you can just use your imagination because it you don't might have be, to might be better. Photos. Anyway, here is Unreserved Wine Talk. Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book, on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 117. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have a career in wine, whether as a TV or radio personality, writer, author, podcaster, event organizer, speaker, or consultant? Well, our guests on this episode have done it all. 
and you're in for a treat with their colorful stories from their brilliant careers. In this episode of the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast, I'm chatting with the dynamic husband and wife team, Susie Berry and Peter Richards, who are both masters of wine. I've got a bonus for you in addition to this podcast. I'd love for you to join me in the premiere watch party of the video of this conversation that I'll be live streaming for the very first time on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube on Wednesday, March 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern. The video will show you the pictures and other visual elements that we discuss in this podcast. I'll also be jumping into the comments on all three platforms as we watch it together so that I can answer your questions in real time. It's like the Netflix version of the podcast. So good. Plus, you can talk to me and ask questions in real time, as I said, as we watch it together. You can also see what other people thought of this conversation and the answers to their questions. Before I introduce Susie and Peter, I want to let you know that you could win a prize pack that includes a personally signed copy of their book on English wine, a lovely linen polishing cloth for your wine stemware, and a very cheeky chef's apron that says on the front, like it fresh and racy? I'll select a winner from those who participate before March 10th. I'll reshare your stories and posts with my followers, whether you win or not, so that you get to connect with more wine lovers. All you have to do is pick your favorite social media channel, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and post a wine that you love before March 10th. I'll post this in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 117. In the show notes, you'll also find a full transcript of our conversation, how you can join me in a free online video wine and food pairing class, where you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube live every Wednesday at 7 p.m., including this evening and next week. That's all in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 117. We have with us a wonderful couple. She's Susie Berry. He's Peter Richards. And they are both masters of wine who happen to be married to each other. Amazing. They were presenters on the flagship BBC television show, Saturday Kitchen, for more than a decade. And in 2014, they launched the Wine Festival for Winchester. It's now an annual event that attracts thousands of people, lots of great wines, and they've raised more than 16,000 pounds for charity. So I think that's around $35,000. Not sure where the foreign exchange is lately, but they've written for the Sunday Times, Decanter Magazine, and many others. They've published six books to date, received many prestigious awards, including the IWSC Communicators of the Year, EWP as well, lots of acronyms, but very prestigious. Not only are they among only a handful of masters of wine in the world, but they both pass this grueling exam on their first try. So they're very smart. And they've also launched their own podcast called Wine Blast, which has hit the top 10 charts in multiple charts heard in 130 countries. It's got glowing reviews. And I have to say, personally, it's become my favorite wine podcast. I love their wit, their charm, and their energy. And I'd like to welcome them now to join us. Hello, Susan and Peter. Susie and Peter. I'll get that right. 
<laughs> so glad to have you. <laughs> Don't sound like Susan? your mom. <laughs> Does she use your middle name as well now, Susan? No. <laughs> Only when she's really naughty. <laughs> okay. Well, we won't go into that first, but so glad. I love your dynamic, the two of you. But before we jump into wine specifically, Susie, you were an actress. Tell us what got you into the world of wine. Well, funnily enough, I was an actress for a few years before I got into wine. It was when I was working, and I was thinking back about this, it was when I was working at Oxford Playhouse, and I was in pantomime, as you always are when you're an actress, because that's when you can get some work. And I was playing Dandini in Cinderella at Oxford Playhouse. And I was walking around town one day and I saw this poster for a wine tasting. And I thought, oh, that sounds quite fun. It was with Oz Clark, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. And so it happened to fall on a night off. I dragged Cinderella along to this wine tasting and we just had so much fun. I mean, I'm sure you know what Oz is like. He just makes it all so much fun. He'd have you drinking out of that glass slipper, I would think. Yeah, <laughs> he would. <You're> so <laughs> right. You know, he's a thesp himself. You know, he loves his singing and acting and he has that background himself. And he was just lovely. And so I suppose that was the moment when I thought, do you know what? I really would love to have my career not in acting and in wine. Now, it took a long way for that to actually happen. It was a long journey. But if I was looking for a moment, that's the moment. Oh, wow. That's a great story. I love that. And Peter, now you came at it from a different angle after graduating with a first class degree at Oxford University. Wow. You went into journalism. How did you make the transition to wine? Well, I think the first class degree was largely fueled by uh, industrial quantities of rosé, cheap rosé. To be honest, Nat, Natalie, I, what I would have given to see that performance, uh, can I just say, I haven't really thought about it until now, but Dandini. Slapping my thigh. Have you still got the costume? No, no, no. that's not good. No, enough. let's not um, Yeah, so I studied languages, French and Spanish, and really no idea what I wanted to do. I definitely had aspirations to be a journalist and to use the languages somehow. So when I graduated, I did a series of unsuitable jobs and was just casting around for ideas. Happened to go to the library and read a book about Chile and thought, hang on, I could be a journalist in South America. Why don't I do that? And basically, because of this book on Chile that I happened to read, it was a library with not many books, so it was a completely random choice. I saw this advert for a job for an English language newspaper in Chile, and I thought, wow, that sounds great. And I knew it made wine as well. There was always that little seed of interest there, even though I knew nothing about it. So I headed out to Chile and ended up becoming editor of that paper. It was a smallish outfit, but it was brilliant for learning. I learned first and foremost how to write, how to write for a paper, and also how to be edited, which, as you know, it's one of those things that often happens in a journalist's career. It doesn't often happen to wine. People often come into writing from other backgrounds. But for me, the background very much was writing and journalism and having those skills and editing and being edited. But one day my boss just came into the office and he said, do you want to write me a book on Chilean wine? And, I, <laughs> and it's one of those moments in life you just don't say no. <laughs> exactly. So I said, yes, but I don't know anything about wine. And he said, doesn't matter, you know, it's going to be a tourist guide because he wants to encourage more tourists to come over and sort of use his services from both the States and from Europe. And so I said, absolutely. So I took myself off. I borrowed his car and his laptop and I visited about 110 wineries, I think, back in those. It was in 1999. It's a hard job, isn't it? Wow, thorough. Still carried on editing the paper. You know, that was my introduction to wine. It was not the usual introduction to wine. I made it clear I, I knew nothing about wine, but the reason I learned was because the Chilean winemakers were so lovely and so hospitable. They took me in, gave me tastings, and they basically taught me the basics. So that was my 
you know, learning period. That was my instruction. That was my gateway into wine. It was a bizarre one, but it was absolutely magical. And yeah, after that, there was no looking back. Oh, wow. And you learned something about carrying a Chilean bottle of wine in a bag? Yeah. So the most important life lesson here, Natalie, that I learned in Chile, it's served me well ever since. Always carry a bottle of wine, a bottle of fine wine in your bag if you don't want to lose it. Because the night before I set off on this epic journey to go and visit 100 Chilean vineyards all across the country, I went out for some celebratory drinks with my pals and I had a bottle of wine in my bag and all my documents, my passport, my money, wallet, everything was in there. Of course, enjoyed the night a bit too much, left the bag in the bar, woke up the next morning in a cold sweat thinking, I can't go anywhere because the passport I haven't got, driver's license gone. I went back to the bar. It wasn't there. It had been stolen. I couldn't go anywhere. And I went back to the office and I said to my boss, look, I'm sorry, this is not going to work. <laughs> I've let you down. And at that moment, he got a phone call from an old lady saying, are you Peter Richards? And he said, no, but I know he's here. And she said, I believe I have your bag. And then what happened was... The thief had been so overjoyed at finding a bottle of wine in my bag. <laughs> he completely didn't look for anything else. He didn't look for the passports and the money. There was a king's ransom in there at the time. He just took the wine and he threw That's the great. bag over the, over the wall into this old lady's gun. So there you go. Now, oh. if you know, valuables, just keep a bottle of wine in your bag. You'll always right. get the valuables back. The decoy strategy. I love it. That's great, Peter. <laughs> so... This may be a similar answer for both of you or different, but take us to the worst moment of your wine or wine writing career. Oh, God. This is a really tough one. That's yeah. a really tough question. Because I think as wine people, we naturally think about positives, don't we? We always yes, think. We do. We do. Generally speaking, your wine career is yeah. often positive. Yeah, it is. And you, you, know, you feel a bit of a fraud if you start complaining about being a wine writer. <laughs> Those <laughs> tiny violins come out. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, exactly. um, I mean, I think one of my memories of feeling terrible was actually to do with Master of Wine course. I'd only just embarked on it. Natalie, I hadn't got a clue what I was letting myself in for. And the first thing you do really is go off on your study week to Rust in Austria. And I just remember getting there and feeling so excited. And within minutes, realising I knew nothing. And this was going to be the hardest week of my life. And it genuinely was the hardest week of my life. I felt sick after the entire week. And it's there etched in my memory. I mean, everything got slightly better from there on in, but it was tough. So it wasn't really part of my, as it were, my career, but it was part of my journey as a wine expert, if you like, as an MW. Sure. Wow. Yeah, that must have been nail biting. I mean, we'll talk more about the master of wine process in a bit. But Peter, do you have a different memory or anything come to mind? Yeah, well, I, I have a memory of Susie coming back from that trip, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. She, Having to pick me up on, I, off the floor. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure we're going to talk about it in a bit. But Susie was the one who first said she wanted to do the MW and I tried to talk her out of it. I said, Lona says, you know, you don't need to. She was already a well-established journalist. But she was adamant. And part of that was to do, I think, with women not being taken seriously enough. Yeah, without getting too serious about it. But I just felt it was, you know, it wasn't that I was treated badly in any way. I just always felt I had to slightly prove myself a little bit more. And I thought, if, you know, if I just could get this, if I could do this, get it and say, right, I'm Susie Barry, Master of Wine. Hopefully that initial having to prove myself, that hurdle will be got over. And then if I fail that's my doing but at least I'm not one step behind before I even begin mm. I tried to talk her out of it and say yeah, but she was vehement 
You didn't listen to me, as ever, story of our relationship. But she did it. And I was so lucky doing it after I came after her that I was already prepared when I had those. I can understand exactly what she meant when I got to Rus to do my first residential course. But because I was pre-prepared, it was so much easier. So I've got her to thank for that. But no, I mean, we, we all have downs in our career. And I think it's important to be open about this, actually. And it'd sort of be two things that come to my mind. First was, I've only ever received a kill fee once in my career. And a kill fee, for those who don't know, is for an article that never gets printed. So you write it and submit it, and it never gets printed because the magazine or whatever doesn't like it. I'm not going to name names, but it was for a magazine that was setting itself out to be super high level, super intellectual, super kind of up there. And... You know, I'd done the Oxford thing. I'd, I'd learned how to write in a highfalutin style when necessary, but I couldn't bring myself, however hard I tried. They specifically asked for footnotes and figures, you know, in an article. And I tried to write that kind of article, but I couldn't. I couldn't because wine, I just felt wine was such a, a fun thing and it was something to make easier for people rather than kind of talking it up and making it deliberately erudite. So anyway, that ended with me just not being, and the magazine saying, Do you know what, this isn't going to work, so we'll pay you a kill fee. So that was quite a low point in a way. But with a good learning in the sense of that was my style. And okay, maybe I can't work for certain people. Maybe certain magazines aren't going to be me. But that was kind of an important learning point for me, even though it was hard to get my head around because that in a way was failure and I hadn't really done failure. Hadn't done failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and exactly now, you know, with the kids, we're learning failure is a good thing. <laughs> Fail every it's, day. It's, it's <laughs> now when it's something to be embraced. And this is the new thing, the teaching mantra, isn't it? It is. Failure is something you embrace because you learn so much from it. I suppose the other thing was, was yeah, it was to do with my first book called Wineries with Style, which is on the architecture of wine and uh, wineries all around the world. Now, not in the sense of a dry sort of architectural treatise, because I know nothing about architecture. It was more a kind of just a chance to tell the story, the history of wine, if you like, through the amazing places we all get to go and visit, you know, from chateau to castles to super modern, funky places. But it was a sort of at a Christmas party and the publishing executive said, you know what, you know, your book really should be doing better, but it's not because we don't really know how to sell it because we don't know whether it's, is it wine? Is it architecture? Is it travel? Is it history? So, you know, we can't really sell it. And that was a really profoundly <laughs> difficult moment because I thought, well, I've got no power here. I, I can't really affect this. But it, it made me learn two things. Firstly, never go into writing a book until you know how to sell it and you know who your market is, which I think as wine people, we, we often tend to just think, well, because we can do this and we're excited, we should do it. Well, no, what purpose is it serving and how are you going to get it to those people to help them? And secondly, you know, wine shouldn't be constrained in just pure wine senses. It can be, and it's a lovely subject unto itself, but like you do uh, brilliantly, you know, so much stuff with food. Wine should be about food. It should be about art. It should be about architecture. You should enjoy these things. These are all things to enjoy and they can be enjoyed together. So it kind of made me more determined in a way just to sort of try and prove that point in, in the later career. And that was, what, 15 years ago. So it hasn't hurt too much. Wow. And I agree with you completely. Like bring people into wine through these other avenues, which the two of you do, you know, whether it's food, especially leading with food. I think far more people are less intimidated with food, like a chicken is a chicken. I'm not going to worry about vintage charts and where did the chicken grow up and all the rest of it. And I think that is a way to make wine a little bit more relaxing and less uptight as a subject. I think you're right. And, and frankly, you know, how often do any of us drink wine without food? You know, it's so much a part of drinking wine, isn't it? And sharing wine, you share it with food. So if people can understand 
food, then of course they can understand wine. You know, yes, you can't understand every intricacy, but you can certainly get it, you know, and understand that that tastes really nice with that, you know. So that's a starting point, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I love your approach. And now I believe in happy endings. So we have to go to the best moments of your career in wine. So far, I should say, you've got many more ahead of you, I'm sure. Well said, well said. First of all, I would say passing the MW was an amazing day. Uh, So that was a real high point. But, you know, one of the big high points in recent years was launching the wine festival. You know, that first year, because, you know, Natalie, it took so much work and it was so unknown to us. Um, It was also our own project. You will definitely appreciate that, you know, some things you do and a lot of things you do are for other people. Um, Most of the time, other people are in control. Um, Actually, this was all ours. And so we were in control, but then that obviously comes with the jeopardy of not knowing quite what's going to happen. It was really successful and it was such a happy and uplifting experience that I think that would have to be a high yeah, point. Yeah, it? but I think I think it didn't it didn't yeah. happen overnight. That's the other thing. It took a couple of years, didn't it? Yeah. I remember, you know, when we launched this really big festival, we wanted loads, thousands of people to come. Uh, I remember the first people coming through the door and the looks on their face was just, what have I got myself in? <laughs> Why were they looking like that? (laughs) Well, because they thought it was going to be really serious or, you know, and it was only when they walked into this massive hall with like hundreds of wines for them to taste, they suddenly started, and you could see the light bulb come on in people's lives. And this was the important thing about the festival, wasn't it? It wasn't us trying to impose, which is what you do really well as well. It wasn't us trying to impose, say, this is what you must do. It's just, look, we are just the conduit. We are here to help you find and enjoy good wine. If we had a mission statement, that, think, that would yeah. be it. It's what our, all of our mission is, isn't it? And you think, what's the simplest way of doing we, that? Well, doing this festival allows people to come and have fun on their own terms. But we did also, as part of the festival, we uh, created something called Follow Your Taste. I was very, very keen when we decided we would do the festival that it was not going to be intimidating. So that person we talk about walking in and looking a little bit lost We wanted to find a way for them to start. Where do they begin? Which wine do they start with? And so we did this thing called Folio Taste, which was very tongue-in-cheek, which the apron that we're talking about, this fresh and racy apron, is all to do with. And it was really breaking wine down into five simple categories. Now we've got six, haven't we? Seven. Seven now, seven categories. Very, very simple. So, And they'd all have a strap line. So like, like it fresh and racy or mellow yellow or feeling fruity. And they'd all have a colour. So they'd have a strap line and a colour and you would go to one of our follow your taste people and say, well, I know I like Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand and you'd get a green fresh and racy sticker. So everybody liked the stickers. And then as you went round the room, the bottles also had either green or yellow or red neck tags. And so people could automatically go to a table and go, well, I've got a green sticker. I'm going to try that green wine. And once you've tasted two or three, you're into it and you don't really mind. You'll go to any table, but you've got over that first hurdle of not knowing where to start. But we had to, by popular demand, introduce a new category the next year, which is one with all the colours on it saying, I'm easy. (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) I think some of my highlights as well, going back, festival would be one where obviously putting on a festival like this, phenomenally expensive. So just in terms of covering costs and making it commercially sustainable, we had to get funding from a number of different sources. Obviously, ticket sales is one and the exhibitors is another, but sponsors were absolutely key in making this happen. But, I, I, you know, as you know, it's not always easy to get sponsors to endorse wine stuff. But one of our key sponsors was Rathbones, an investment management company. One of the lovely things, and this is kind of where I think for us wine people, sometimes everything can be, it's all lovely, but it can be slightly detached. We help people, but 
we sort of don't help them it's as well. It's intangible. It's intangible. That's the word. So Tony, who helped set the sponsorship up, he was an investment manager, and they carried on sponsoring. He came to the festival because he got free tickets as part of his sponsorship deal. And now he's developed this complete other passion and he's coming to a really high level. And I'm joking to him, Tony, you're going to be outclassing it to the master of wine. <laughs> but it's those sort of things, isn't it? Those tangible things. That's where it's just lovely. It's like a teacher. And I know you've got teaching in your blood, but that feeling, you know, as a teacher, when you help someone genuinely become passionate about something and change their lives and doing it, that's what it's all about. Starting that spark, like that, just seeing people turned on to... Turn on to one. And yeah. you know, as we know, yeah. it's a subject that's easy to get passionate about. But on that note, just one little little anecdote story of a moment, which is maybe wasn't the greatest sort of moment in wine, but it's when you realise along similar lines that you're making a difference to people was when we'd been doing Saturday Kitchen for a couple of years. And I was just walking along in London in quite a dodgy part of London. It was a bit dangerous. One of those areas where, you you know, you take your wallet just a bit more than usual, your bag. Move quickly. And... <laughs> And as there long were two as you've got a bottle of wine in that bag, you were fine, though, right? Of course, of course. Yeah, okay, that was okay, my other strategy. Yeah, throw the wine. Look, there's the wine. Run. No, it was these two quite threatening guys, big hoodies, low-slung jeans, sort of approached me, and I thought I was just going to keep my head down here. And 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 one of them said, "Oi, or you?" And so, <laughs> he said, "Ain't you that wine guy off the telly?" <laughs> That's great. And I thought these these guys are hoodlums. I said, "Well." Yeah. <laughs> and they said, they said, that rosé you recommended the other day, that, that rosé, that was well day. Um, <laughs> That's great. I love that. It's just, you know, I didn't so know what unexpected. to say because you think, I, you know, what? <laughs> just the fact you watched this programme and you obviously, I didn't realise, I mean, that was actually a compliment, well dirty, apparently. They, they tried the rosé and they liked it. And you think, oh, this is all my Christmases come at once. Because if you're reaching people from all across the social spectrum, it's just fantastic. It is indeed. And it reminds me, Peter, this young girl was standing at a bus stop and she was reading a book. And then I realized as I was walking on the other side, she was reading my book, Red, White and Drunk All Over. She had a nose ring and she had pink hair like this and she was laughing and she had like Doc Martens on and everything was like, all right. Oh, that's <laughs> that's brilliant. Did you say hello? I, hope she said hello. I was too shy. I'm an oh, introvert. It's like, it's like, oh, you can take a picture. <laughs> that's about it. They are wonderful moments though, aren't they? Really? They are. They are. And the reader letters that you get sometimes are just so moving too. You realize it's just wine. I'm not like, you know, out saving children as, you know, Médecins Sans Frontier. And anyway, those moments, yeah, are what we live for. So what do you think you'd be doing though? I guess, well, I guess what you'd be doing if you weren't writing about wine would be original careers, I guess. You would have continued along those paths. So I think pretty much so. Yeah. Probably, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you'd still be in who knows? Who knows? I don't know that I would actually. I think I would have moved on and done something else. Um, acting's such a tricky career, it really is. I mean, I'm sure you would be right. Well, I think you would actually be writing your novel that Peter keeps telling us he's going to write a novel, Natalie. So maybe if I say it now, he has to do it. <laughs> maybe it can involve wine somehow. Yes. Maybe. Yes. Ideas welcome. Your family is sort of quite a hotel and, and Yeah, I mean, I was brought so. up, my entire childhood was all in pubs, hotels, restaurants. Yeah. So it's unlikely that I wouldn't be in that world somehow. I think I would have moved on from acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, perfect. 
Okay, well, let's look at some photos because you've shared some great ones with me and I want folks to see this. We're slightly um, nervous as to what's coming. <laughs> given the access. Well, you both sent photos separately, so I'm kidding. <laughs> it's what you sent together. Here we go. Um, <laughs> so this is you at home, I assume. It is. That's in our kitchen. It's a few years ago. I think you can always date the photos, can't you, by my hair. The hair, yes, that's <laughs> right. Long hair. So this is a few years ago, yeah. but it is in our kitchen. I hadn't realised that that label, that pink label, do you know, that's a Valpolicella Rapasso that Majestic sell. And oh, it's okay. just delicious. And we've actually, this is from a few years ago, we've literally just used that in a masterclass oh. in our online wine festival. And that shows you how much we like that wine. She's such a <laughs> bottle geek, no, no, <laughs> We'll that's spot a bottle from 100 yards and tell you what it is. And it's got a nice oh, wow. label. It's got a nice label. So that's our kitchen. Yeah, that's our kitchen. Oh, lovely. And Susie, are you always pouring for Peter? Uh, that's a very good question. He's, he's it looks there. like he might give you a good tip or something. He's sitting there as if, come on then, wench. Pour me a, pour me a glass. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm a man, Natalie. Okay. <laughs> I can't multitask. I think the photographer had said something like, you've got to look, look, at, the camera. look at the camera and smile. <laughs> right. That was right. all I could do. So I can't do anything else. Right? So I to, be, to be really fair, it's usually the other way around. But I am usually the one cooking. And so Peter would always be doing the wine and I'd so be I'm on, I'm on service. I am sous chef, but that is uh, to overstate I, my... Which, if I'm correct, from having a, a little look at what you do, Natalie, I think you might be the other way around, aren't you? Yes, exactly. I just pull corks. I've never cooked. <laughs> The learned helplessness has been terrific. It's a strategy that served me well. But yes, (laughs) my partner, Miles, is a great, great cook. But I hear you cook Michelin star type recipes. Very complicated, Susie. Oh, do you know, that's a lot that came from Saturday Kitchen, actually, um, because we used to have chefs on every week who were often Michelin starred or, you know, they liked unusual kind eclectic, of dishes, yeah. eclectic dishes. And the only way we really felt we could definitely match the right wine to those dishes was by cooking them. Because I think as a, as a wine expert, you know, you can have an idea of maybe half a dozen wines, depending on the dish. I mean, sometimes you think, I haven't got a clue. It could be red, it could be white, it could be sweet, it could be dry. But often you've got an idea, but you still don't know exactly which wine is going to pick up on exactly that amount of spice or that amount of sweetness. We would try always, or I would try always to source the ingredients, which was often comical, actually, and then cook the dish. And so that did mean some crazy dishes. Yes. I remember yeah, trying yeah. to source some edible moss at one stage for a dish. <laughs> moss? Uh, wow. I got some moss, but I don't think it was edible. No, we um, out the garden. Yeah, no, she definitely got the reputation as being the difficult wine matcher because she would demand the recipes. And, <laughs> and often these recipes would arrive in unintelligible format yeah, and she would have to make sense of them. I think, I think some people just have the cooking. They have a sense mm. of cooking and I think she does I don't well I mean I love it so you know you either probably do or don't and so it for me it's just time when I just drift off and and go and do my own thing and then poodle around in the kitchen really and I just enjoy it yeah but also in terms of the wine matching you know I think it's what's lovely is to be able for both of us to sit down and try them often one of us would say I love this and the other one would say nah it's you know and then it would so for one wine to actually satisfy both of our palates meant that we knew it had a very good chance of working for a lot of people out there who were watching the show. Yes, indeed. Is wine sort of all over your house? I mean, are are you filled with bottles and... It is. I, you know, I sometimes wonder when we ask somebody maybe to come and like a plumber to come and do something for us, <laughs> they must just think, oh my, if we haven't told them what we do, you know, 
what is this? You know, they must be a pair of alcoholics because there are, li- well, I, I'm sure you're the same, but there are literally sort of empty bottles, full bottles, half bottles, maybe some fortified wine that we've just kept in case I want it for some cooking. And it just goes on and on. So yes, the house is slightly riddled with bottles. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we... And I'll get deliveries of like four or five cases and <laughs> the delivery guy will say, wasn't I here just last week? Yes. <laughs> it's like, you just Not bring it on. All? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Personal relationships with the couriers is the way forward. Yeah. I did a tasting piece for Decanter magazine at the beginning of lockdown. And they said to me, oh, do you know what? It's fine. We were going to bring you in to the offices to do it here, but you can do it at home. It's fine. We'll just get the deliveries to home. And normally, bearing in mind, normally you would probably only get about 60 or 80 wines submitted by people in times when people are not in the pandemic lockdown. So it was quite unusual. How many, how many was it? We, we had, I think it was getting on for 300 wines arrived. Which there and were two bottles sent of two each. bottles of everything. <laughs> um, but it wasn't the thing is, it wasn't the wines. And I'm never going to complain about being very kindly sent all these samples, which was absolutely fascinating tasting as well. But it was the packaging. And this is the key thing, isn't it? You know, the waste of resources that kind of can be used for wine. We've got to be so careful about this. And I think well, we, also we, we were, are trying to find solutions. We were, now. We were in lockdown, but so we couldn't get rid of it either because the, the dumps all the, were all, all, the, all the dumps were closed. So we basically, the kids couldn't move in the house, you know, for packaging. There was a sort of labyrinth system around the house <laughs> where you could move amongst the kind of cardboard boxes, but we never got nice. the odd polystyrene bit. Maybe uh, make some interesting forts or something like that. But <laughs> what do you think wine has done for your relationship? I mean, obviously it's a shared passion, but anything else in terms of how it's helped your relationship? I, I think it regularly helps our relationship, Matt. Natalie, you know, <laughs> a glass of wine at the end of the day. That's a really interesting question. I mean, it's hard probably to separate the relationship from careful, wine, really. Careful, you know, careful. But it's our career. It's a very it? fine line she's treading, isn't it? I'm very curious <laughs> what she says next, to be honest. Keep going. <laughs> what wine would we still be together? Um, we can thank wine for lots. I honestly think it's one of those things that a lot of couples, they're married, they have a normal life, they maybe go out to work, they meet at the end of the day, they might talk a bit about work, they might talk about other things. You know, for us, wine is just in everything. And it is what we talk about, but it's mixed with everything else. So it's just a shared passion that we feel quite lucky to have. And I don't know, would our relationship be different without it? It's impossible to say because it's got it and it always has had it. And I think I think it just gives us something to talk about really all the time. And, and Susie's right, it's sort of, it's the work and there's projects and stuff, but then we can switch and it's something we're enjoying at the table and we can discuss it in non-geeky ways. It's something we're just enjoying. So we're very, very lucky in that sense. It works. It's a nice symbiotic relationship all around. And maybe you'd slightly flip it and say, well, actually, maybe our relationship has helped our career in wine because we bounce off each other the whole time. Yeah, actually, that's a good question. Yeah, and that really does help because I think so much of wine, as you know, is, is working with other people, talking to other people, bouncing ideas, you know, not just opinions about wine, but what we're doing with wine, how we communicate it best. And yeah, that's definitely helped a lot, hasn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Sure. So are your children interested in wine? <laughs> I love this. No, that was Why just did Susie find? did that after a big night. And she, that was, that was, no, no. Um, that was that, that is a brilliant. That was, uh, that, it's, that was, was that our daughter? daughter. That was our daughter. I don't know how old she was when she did it. but oh. It says, uh, I love your job and a bottle. So for those who are listening to the podcast, <laughs> this is great. It is. It's, it's, it's a big bottle, isn't it? Filled with red wine. It's, it's an unusual shape of bottle mm. as well, actually. Mm. 
I don't know how old she was when she did this, but what, yeah. seven, eight? I don't know. But um, it was a surprise because generally speaking, they take a healthy disregard in everything that we do, as is normal for children. And they certainly haven't shown any massive sort of. Oh, taste, they get, they're taste getting, for wine. No, they're getting more interested, though. You know that thing where they see it a lot and now they're realizing it's actually something that might be quite interesting. The other night, we gave our daughter a sip of something and she just went, Riesling 2019. And we went, just bizarre. And you know that thing we went, it is Riesling, and <laughs> eighteen, but that's very good. But then she went. I just heard you saying it. Well, not not that she'd heard it about that wine, but I've heard you say that grape name before. So we knew it wasn't really that she. It's she got, a well, savant, she, a wine savant. She knew that Riesling tasted like apples, and it was yeah, one of those. It was, it was uh, those Plan things. B Riesling from Western Australia. It was just great wine, Australian Riesling, wine. a lovely one. But it's one of those ones that just you smell it and you think, yeah, bang, apples. It's almost like osmosis. It's going in yeah. because we're talking about it so much. And I think the one way we're seeing the results actually is is both the kids were very lucky, are really interested in cooking, and especially our daughter, is taking a real interest in cooking and flavours and tastes and making her own stuff. And I think that's coming partly from your but interest also, in cooking, but also yeah. the fact she sees us every day taking a real interest in what we taste. I think that's sort of how And they both effect. do. You know, we've got a, a little boy who's a bit younger. But, you know, on, on a slightly more serious note, I know not everybody agrees with this, but I do firmly believe that the more you normalise alcohol with children the less likely they are to see it as something they're desperate to go and try and binge on and, and have a bad relationship with. So we believe that they should be allowed a little taste and to listen to us talking about it and to see the bottles and, you know, to kind of try and understand it a bit more and see it's quite a civilised yeah. thing. And, I mean, it's difficult because I think to respect the, it. the scientific understanding is that, you know, alcohol taken or drunk before a certain age will impair brain development to a certain extent. So you've got to be so, so careful. But I think from our perspective, it is about, as he says, not making it this big thing that you can go and just explaining, explaining the risks, the benefits, what we know, how it can be part of a healthy lifestyle, as well as, as well as how it can be dangerous, especially for younger people. So it is in there. I mean, I have to say, to end on a, on a slightly more jocular note, you know, we were convinced that both kids were going to be teetotal, <laughs> given the usual way that, you know, children react completely against what their parents do. But I'm not sure it's going to turn out that way. We'll see. We'll do another interview in 10, 20 years. We'll see. Yeah, that's how. right. The follow up. It just reminds me of my son, who's now 22. But when he was three, I said, Would you like to taste the wine? And he was kind of looking at me suspiciously because it's treats that I kept away, it was vegetables that I gave him. So I gave him, it was a Shiraz. I made sure it was not a sweet wine so he wouldn't get hooked early. So he just tasted that Australian Shiraz. He was just said, it's yuck. It's total <laughs> yuck. And then he, he doesn't even drink now. It's like, I think I just scared him permanently. What happened is we used to go to the same liquor store a lot. You know, I have this three-year-old with me and he was calling all the store staff by their first names. So I thought child <laughs> services is going to, I'm going to get a call. Like, hey, Joe. Hi, you know, anyway. <laughs> but it is something about that generation as well, though. I think that they're very aware, aren't they? Yes. They are a wonderful generation. And I think they have a lot of responsibility or they feel often they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders, but they're very, very aware about what they're eating and drinking. And I think we've got a lot to learn from them, actually, as a generation. I do slightly worry as well. I'm slightly concerned for them in, in the sense of there's a danger of taking life a bit too seriously. I just wonder if sometimes we do as humans need to just unwind sometimes and enjoy, let ourselves go a little bit. And I hope that, I'm sure it's not the case, but I hope that as, as that generation grows up, they'll feel that they don't have the weight of the world on their shoulders, that they are good people and they're going to do good things, but they can enjoy themselves. And that hopefully will involve some nice wine and food at some stage. I hope. We'll have to get them all together. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you folks look like serious runners here. Is this part of the Maydoc? I've got more Maydoc marathon photos coming up. Tell us about this. So we did, which year was it? 2014. 14. 2014. 2014. That's a different run, That's actually, different enough. Um, There's so many occasions in which we dress in very silly attire to run races, Natalie, which we'll have to oh, talk you to. That's great. But the first one was the Medoc in 2014. That was our first big one. Yeah. So this was um, the Medoc Marathon, which is for anybody who may, I presume not everybody's familiar with it, but it's around Bordeaux's vineyards. It's a full marathon, but I was very unlucky. I'm not going to make this a very long story. <laughs> I, I, we, we got to France the day before. We stayed overnight, had supper, and clearly something didn't agree with me in my supper. And I started running and thought, oh, this is not good. I was unwell <laughs> oh, oh. for the entire course of the marathon. And it was 30 degrees heat. It was so hot. So, um, yeah, so-, so this was me crossing the finishing line Peter was unbelievably kind we trained so hard for this and I was being abysmal when we were you know hopeless and he stayed with me instead of going on and getting a good time he did stay with me which was above and beyond the call well what I love about that is you know she runs about three times she runs like the wind so for me to have to say oh no don't worry honestly I'll stay with you (laughs) was like oh thank the lord for once I can keep up with her we did this in 2014 and we did it in memory of a great friend of ours Michael Cox who was head of Wines of Chile in the UK and had a long career in the wine trade. He very, very sadly died of cancer shortly before this. And his wife, Lynn, was a great long distance runner. So we thought, well, why don't we do a positive thing with Lynn? And we got and a whole team of, team of runners from brilliant. Chile yeah. and yeah. all over. We're very kind. And we raised about £16,000 yeah, yeah. for, uh, for charity as a result of this. But it was great fun. We had a really good laugh. We had the best. Joy, we had a great glass of wine at Lafitte, but the ice Lafitte. cream... Oh the, my the Lafitte, Lafitte. Well, yes. it was, yeah, yeah. you sort of have some, they're not serving Lafitte. Exactly. Yeah. So you stop so at each chateau. Way, to honestly, have... with the Medoc Marathon, there's oysters, there's steak, there's wine everywhere. Completely and inappropriate. Oh. The only thing that was good, the glass at Lafitte was okay, but the cheap chocolate ice cream at mile 28 or whatatever it was. No, it was the last, last stop. Was the so uh, literally a kilometer before you finished was an ice cream. And I've never enjoyed an ice cream more in my entire life. <laughs> That's great. If I think if you'd offered Susie a bottle of Lafitte and, and another one of those ice creams at that stage, she would have taken the ice cream. I'd have gone for the ice cream. <laughs> it's terrific. Well, Lorna, one of the folks on social media and who actually contributes to my site, she's a marathon runner too. And she was asking me, how did they manage to run this with wine and ice cream? And she said, I couldn't make it. Like my stomach would be so upset. Funny enough, we have very different approaches to running because we're not crazy serious runners, but it's probably our form of exercise. And we tend to do runs, sort of half marathons and things. So this was, uh, there's a picture here of Peter dressed as Richard the Lionheart. He loves fancy dress. (laughs) More than I do. (laughs) Running around the vineyards of Denby's in Dorking, so English vineyard. And they every year have what they call the Bacchus half marathon. There is a marathon, but it's basically the half run twice so it's more of a half that's me doing it in a rather silly outfit as well and it's just a brilliant brilliant half marathon but again it's wine all the way every time you stop this in fact there are no loos but there is wine everywhere (laughs) (laughs) it was one toilet on the entire course and about 20 wine stops wine's a diuretic or a diuretic is it yeah it flushes the system anyway it does does, but you also you know you you get thirsty running so there there is an optimum honestly i can talk you through the medics of it but but what i was going to say was i'm always the killjoy about these things and i just like to get running and run and you know i don't tend to stop for 
wine or food or anything. Whereas Peter is brilliant and stops everywhere, has a glass of wine at every station, has his food, has a chat and just enjoys the run, which I think is really the spirit in which you are supposed to do these and things. I, and, I, and I think my guru in this logic is uh, Henri Lourton of Brand Cantonac, who, who sponsored, we were part of the Brand Cantonac team in the Medoc Marathon. I remember sitting next to him the night before the Medoc Marathon and he trying to convince me in that beautiful Gallic way that obviously, you know, actually it was better to drink wine around a marathon than not drink wine. And I was not <laughs> believing any of this. But then I did the Medoc Marathon and I thought, well, okay. And actually there was a chap who we met up afterwards from the British wine trade who was about 20 years older than us. He'd done it in half the time we had and he drank in all the stops. So I thought maybe there's something in this. So I hit the Bacchus half marathon since I've definitely tried that theory and there's something to it Natalie I don't know what it is but you definitely have to be in fancy dress and this is the key okay everyone misses this bit but even if it's a serious long run wear fancy dress because that gets you out of everything everyone says gosh that's a really bad time but if you were wearing that that's amazing (laughs) and you can drink and no one worries about your time so the key is just fancy dress Absolutely. And I <laughs> I walked the Bordeaux or the Madoc Marathon once. I'm not a runner at all, but I was dressed as a Canadian, I guess. But first, these eight guys, each holding a this massive wedding cake. And one guy was at the top, so they were carrying him. So they passed me, you know, and all these people in mega fancy dress, and I'm optimized for being cool. And then finally, the last straw was when this elderly woman was pushing a catheter. <laughs> she sort of crawled or walked up past me. And I thought, oh my God, I'm just, I'm not made for a marathon. So anyway. Oh, I think I shouldn't really be laughing at that, but it is too. <laughs> <laughs> she was in better shape. Yeah, no, amazing. I mean, the Medoc Marathon was eye-opening, isn't it, in that sense? Firstly, for how much the French clearly relish dressing up and especially how much French men like dressing up like racy women. Yes. There's a lot of ballerinas, a lot of mustaches and ballerinas. Yes, very <laughs> intriguing. I think that needs exploring somehow in national psychology program. It's a different podcast, yeah. But also, just, you just sit up and on a sort of more serious point, we're so used to the Medoc being and Bordeaux being very straight-laced, very buttoned up, very smart, very serious. And you go for the Medoc Marathon and you look around and you're on the quay in uh, the quayside in Poyac, you know, the headquarters of serious Bordeaux. And, you know, there are gigantic stages with samba dancers and 10,000 people dressed like idiots and, and have just having a great time in a wine part of the world. And you think, yeah, you know, this is good. We should never lose sight of this. Wine is about enjoyment. It's about fun. And this kind of thing and getting together is just exactly the kind of thing that wine should be doing. And it's exactly the kind of thing that Bordeaux needs to do particularly. Absolutely. I agree. And is this Medoc as well, where you're Santa's? This is, this is yeah. funnily enough. I mean, it's, this is a little one. It's in Winchester, which is where we live. And it's okay. the uh, Santa fun run. And it's just a 5k <laughs> that everybody does with their kids. And it's in the beginning of December, is it? I'm trying to think when it is. And it's in, anyway, it's in aid of um, a local charity, which is Naomi House, it's called. Um, and so it's just a really lovely fun run around Winchester. And I think there's... And we all dress as Santa. So you you get a a Santa suit and you run... (laughs) I can't see there, but I think I'm with one or two of the kids. And it's just, yeah, it's just it's just good fun. fun. And as you can see, I make a really bad Santa. (laughs) (laughs) I think you've lost your beard. Anyway. (laughs) Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Susie and Peter. Here are my takeaways. One. 
I love listening to the journeys that brought both Susie and Peter from such different backgrounds to the world of wine. I feel that we all sort of stumble into this world and then never want to leave it. Two, I couldn't agree more with their take that a great place to start learning about wine is through food pairing and to heck with those who scoff at the notion. That's why my online Wine Smart course focuses on pairings. And three, I enjoyed hearing how wine has affected their relationship beyond that shared passion. And the stories about running the Medoc Marathon that were so amusing. Wine bridges so many cultures, regions, and moments. I love it. You won't want to miss next week when we continue our lively discussion with Susie and Peter for the final part of our conversation. More juicy tips and stories. If you like this episode, please tell one friend about it this week especially someone you know who'd be interested in the tips that Susie and Peter shared. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Post on social media about it, and you could win a lovely prize pack. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcleancom forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. So there we have it. Uh, Thanks for listening to this interview of us on Natalie McLean's Unreserved Wine Talk, brought to you as a bonus edition of Wine Blast. Uh, Part two will follow shortly. But in the meantime, thanks to Natalie, thanks to you and cheers all round.